Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and a Bird Show. Back briefly, uh, because we're going to be going away again for another two weeks. We were gone last week, but we're, we'll be back briefly. And this week, we are coming to you from underneath the heat dome. <laughs> okay, the heat Sounds dome. Sounds kind of similar to the Thunder Dome, but nothing like it. Okay, I was thinking that we were coming from a well-air-conditioned room. Well, we are, but the the meteorological term for the weather condition impacting the Midwest to the East Coast is a heat dome. Oh, okay. So this is actually it's a, legitimate. a legitimate term. Legitimate. I didn't a, make it up. As opposed to the number of people that thought, what was the snow? Bombogenesis. Word? Bombogenesis was a made-up term. That's real, too. That's a real one, too. Al Roker had to pull out his 1950s-era meteorological textbook to show it in the glossary that it was not made up does it worry anybody that it was only in a 1950s era meteorological well, textbook no the the point the, the allegation was that he made it up that he made it up just for the broadcast or that the global warming folks had just made this term up oh so he went back as far as he could to to go see this is not something that we just dreamed up last night to go and promote global warming theory. This has been around for a long time before anybody discussed it. Yes. But yes, we are in the midst of a heat wave um, here in middle America. As you can imagine, everyone is complaining because the one universal truth I can tell you about the Midwest and probably most of the upper flyover states is that no matter the weather outside, it can be complained about. Well, that's everywhere. I have never seen it taken to the art form that it is in the greater Cleveland area. Okay. I mean, seriously, there's like maybe 24 hours in the entire year that somebody, that one person in the area will go, this is perfect. Well, again, as I mentioned, just so we can get the reminder out there, we're going to be off for two weeks. I will be traveling uh, during those two weeks, which is why we won't be doing a show. Um, I'll. But I will be monitoring the website and the Facebook feeds for comments and commentary yes and there should be stuff to comment on because not next weekend but the following weekend my trip will be culminating in the home of ferrari i will be posting pictures from marinello italy i will not be doing a factory tour but i will drive in that general vicinity but not in a ferrari no i'm not going to rent a ferrari because the idea of because spending i said no I didn't even ask. It was because the idea of spending 200 euros, 200 plus euros, to drive a Ferrari in the downtown traffic of Marinello for 10 minutes didn't sound like a viable option. I don't think that that sounds like didn't a, spend, sound like a worthwhile a good deal. Yeah, that, that was my thought. So now I did happen to notice, and I'm still not going to pursue it, I guess you can drive Ferraris in other par on the streets in other parts of Italy and other cities. Bologna has some, and, and even over by the Lamborghini factory and Pagani and stuff, there's other options to rent Ferraris and drive them for cheaper, but I still decided I'm not going to do that. Uh, I will probably be just fine in my Fiat Punto that I rented <laughs> for three yes. days for less money. Yes. <laughs> if you close your eyes now while you're driving... And think really, really hard. You could pretend it's a Ferrari. Make vroom vroom sounds. <laughs> I'm vroom, driving. Vroom sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm most interested in the hotel that you're staying in. So I want pictures of your car bed that is obviously <laughs> happening. <laughs> yes, I'm staying at the, the Hotel Marinello Village, which is very Ferrari themed from the pictures we have seen. I don't believe that it is a car bed, but it is certainly a Ferrari color scheme that dominates the bedroom. And there appears to be a replica of a Ferrari Formula One car in the lobby. Also sounds fascinating. But, you know, I just I, I need to see this as in, in photos as best I can, since, you know, some of us have to hold down Bloke and the Bird Central here in the States while you're off gallivanting. So first pictures from the trip and possibly video will be coming uh, from to the Facebook page. And then we'll have other pictures that probably once I get back, will go to the website. Okay. So that's the plan. Now, before we get into the show itself, we have... Fantasy GP results for France. Let's go ahead and, and, and get those, uh, share those now. Here's where things stand after the French Grand Prix. In the last race, Patricia's Bird team won the week with 134 points, followed by Michael's Mach 5 Racing on 123 points. Richard's Fly Fast team have strong week with 117 points, while Phil's Team Rocket was next with 108 points. Agro's Puppet Racing was 5th with 106 points, and the boys' Moonlit Black Cats team was 6th with just 100 points. In the overall league standings, Michael's Mach 5 Racing holds on to 1st with 1,038 points. Patricia's The Bird team continues to close the gap but stays in 2nd with 1,030 points. Agro's Puppet Racing holds on to 3rd with 993 points. Phil's Team Rocket hangs on to 4th with 927 points. But Richard's Fly Fast team moves up to 5th with 800 points ahead of the boy with 796 points. Even though the season has already started and we are almost halfway through, you can still join in by going to FantasyGP.com and entering the league code 148-31491 and pit your picks against ours every week. First and foremost, mm -hmm. yay me, I won the week in France. <laughs> you did. Given the fact that we have never <clears throat> seen racing at Paul Ricard. And it was a hard one to pick. There has been one current F1 driver that has ever raced F1 on Paul Ricard. Yeah. Um, I, that was a hard one to call. I, I So I'm, I'm excited and, and thrilled. I'm trying to close that gap after you had that one phenomenal weekend in Monaco. <laughs> um, I'm eking out into that gap as much as I can. Richard um, also. Uh, but that's the one I really want to Overhauled at the back there. Yes. Um, he's really proving that he's the best of the rest. Now, Richard, you, you have a bit of an advantage for the next couple of weeks because the boy is on vacation. So we'll be reminding him that he needs to go and put his picks in, but I wouldn't be surprised if he missed a week. <laughs> <laughs> like possibly this week. I no, I, I already spoke to him. He, okay. he did do picks for this week. I don't know what he did, but he did picks for this week. We also will not be publishing his results for the next couple of weeks when we do our results post, when I get to them. We don't always get them every week. I try. But until he, he comes back from vacation, I won't have his results. Okay. So, um, but yes, uh, I think Richard was predicting he was going to fin finish 
at the far back because he doesn't actually watch racing. Yeah. Well. Um, so um, be impressed. And I think that this is proof. And as I alluded to very early in the fantasy GP thing is Richards are the most pure scores of what happens if you solely listen to us. Which means we still suck. But here's the thing. <laughs> he sucks less than our boy who actually watches the race. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so go Richard. And um, actually, congratulations to everybody that's been part of this team. It's been a lot of fun. And um, I know we're almost halfway through. So my other big question for you is, when are you going to stop inviting people to join our team? Uh, probably up until Abu Dhabi. Because okay. the idea is, even though you've you've missed the start of the race, you can still go up against this week to week. True. And, and that's the thing. So all the way through to the end of the season, you can still join. You can still be, yes, in the overall standings, you're not going to come close. You could probably beat the boy, though. But week to week, you can still beat us. And you could probably beat the boy in the well, overall yeah, there's standings. That too. So. Uh, it's still going to take some work, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we should see what happens this week because so far after qualifying, I'm not doing so well. <laughs> so, because I saw you trying to figure it out. Did you figure out what, what the, the background track was? I did not. It's the Rockford Files. Really? <laughs> It's the Rockford wow. Files. I couldn't, I would never have been able to recognize it since it's not 11 o'clock at night. Okay. <laughs> you know, since I only know this show from deep reruns in the wee hours. Yeah, well. <laughs> so it being sunlight outside, you know, I can't. It seemed odd. Okay. It was out of time and place. So let's actually talk about some news, some things that have happened while we were gone in the last week. Yes. Um, for starters, several of the teams are pushing the FIA to reduce testing for 2019. Explain this reduce. I thought that everybody wanted more testing, learn more, be able to be stronger on the track. They did. However, there's, there's two things to keep in mind. Okay, we're starting to wind down towards what should be the end of these rules. We've got about three years left. 1920 wow. and actually 21 is actually so two two years left two seasons under these current rules so there's already been a push to freeze development on these engines until 2021 for that reason <clears throat> but the other not just the diminishing returns they're going to start getting out of this but remember next year is going to be a 21 race season ouch that's gonna be a tough season so they're okay with the preseason testing, the winter testing, they're not asking to do that. But the thought is to cut down on the number of in-season tests because of the, the, the toll it takes on the team personnel who don't get a break because they're, they're stuck at the track for another two to three days. Plus, drivers are putting in another 100 laps or so each at a minimum. But if there's any kind of issues – and whether that's mechanical, whether that's an incident or whatever, a lot of these in-season tests, especially like when the Spanish Grand Prix happens, teams are still low on spares. Ah. So if something breaks, it further puts a crimp on their plans. Mm. Okay, I can understand that. I can get behind that idea. 
So we don't know whether or not anything's going to happen. Uh, they're pushing to go from two in-season tests down to one in-season test, but this would not impact the, in, the, the scheduled in-season tests for tires over at uh, Abu Dhabi. That, that's independent of this. Okay. <clears throat> but testing is also a great time for it to get young drivers in the cars, and that's the biggest drop. That, that's the thing. Now, keep in mind, we don't have what we used to have in 2012 and I think 2013, that dedicated young driver test. Right. We don't have that anymore. Instead, we have the requirement that they need to put a young driver in the car for one day of a test. Correct. So... But I agree in terms of getting young drivers, especially since we're seeing very few young drivers that appear to be ready to move up, mm-hmm. um, losing that time seems to be kind of dangerous. Now, yeah, you can stick them in in Q1, but the current drivers don't really appreciate that move. True, because they, they need that time to prepare mm-hmm. for their race. Really hurt Grosjean. Um, what was that, the last year he was at Renault? Uh, when he was at Lotus, they were Lotus. giving the seats to Jolian Palmer. Right. And you see how well that worked out for Jolian, too. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> he's an amazing broadcaster for the BBC, just by the way. He actually, he's been pretty good. He's got, um, he's got good insights because he's a recent driver, mm-hmm. and he's got good insights. He's, he's well-spoken. I like him. It's one of those really great cases of, I'm glad you had the experience, but because you weren't great in the car, you're a better broadcaster. And I think that's a good spot for him right now. Yeah. Yeah. I would I don't... love to have seen Jensen get a broadcast. I know. Gig, that but... would have been awesome. Oh, yeah. Because he'd would be better fantastic. at it than Weber is. Weber's not bad. I, don't... I just don't think Weber is great. He's not great, but he's not bad. Um, no. And again, the, the combination of Mark Weber and David Cothart really is fantastic they play off each other so well and actually if you threw a jensen into the mix with those two oh then you'd have some fun you'd have a killer broadcast team which um speaking of which we're gonna lose that broadcast team i know and it does not sound like um david cothart has any intention of moving to sky especially because that's a competing production house Mm. remember Channel 4's coverage is produced by Whisper Films, okay. which David Cothard is one of the three partners of. Oh. I hope that doesn't mean that he's not going to be doing coverage of F1. I mean, he's so good at it. Uh, it, it I think it would be dependent on whether or not Whisper was hired to produce for somebody else. Um, the other person, and, and his name just escaped me, um, the guy who used to uh, host the BBC coverage in 2012. Oh, the one that went off to do other sports. Yes. He wasn't an F1 guy, but he was really good. He came from kids' television. Right. Um, yeah, I don't remember his name either, but he did it before Susie Perry did it. Correct. Um, he's one of the other – there's three partners – He's one, David Cothard's the other. The three of them stu- built the company. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. You know, American ESPN, you guys could, like, win if you would hire that team to do Formula One coverage and not just rebroadcast Sky's coverage. I don't think they're going to. I don't think they have any interest in investing in it because of the F1 TV Pro situation. 
I can understand that. Plus, I mean, they got to be making bank on just doing this re-air because they've got no investment other than what it costs to do the re-air. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so that's, yeah, I can understand that. So moving on, the, the other really big story, which wasn't a huge surprise other than I think the timing of it, um, which happened while we were gone, was the announcement that Aston Martin Red Bull Racing would no longer be Renault-powered from 2019 on, uh, but instead would become a customer team of Honda. And that's an important piece. Honda has said and Red Bull has acknowledged that neither of their two customer teams will be considered works teams and will have work status. They will both be treated equally when it comes to engine supply. Right. That'll be interesting. Honestly, it will be interesting. But, yes, they're moving to Honda. The official name of the team will become is it Aston Martin Honda, uh, Aston Martin Red Bull Honda Racing. Um, well, basically, it's, they're going to replace the, the Renault with Honda is, is all they're going to do in the name. Actually, in this case, they're not even replacing <coughs> the, the Renault right, name. They're replacing, replacing Tag Heuer. Yeah. Now... Andy Palmer over at Aston Martin was asked about if there was any potential con conflict, if there was any concerns over the fact that Honda was coming in and admittedly replacing Renault. What Andy had to say was very clearly the team name is Aston Martin Red Bull Racing. And then, of course, the FIA adds the engine manufacturer name. But let's be brutally honest. While it was called TAG, everybody knew it was a Renault. And in that sense, what is the difference between whether it is a Renault or a Honda? Aston Martin has zero cross-shopping with both brands, so we are completely indifferent to the name. <laughs> he went on to say further, if it was a Ferrari engine, I would have a problem, and that would be a red line. But our customers don't cross-shop cross us with either Renault or Honda, and can I say that Honda is more of a problem than Renault covered up with the name of the tag? I honestly don't think so. We've known about it for a while, and we fundamentally agree with where Red Bull wanted to go. Let's be clear. We don't have a veto. We were simply part of the consultation process, and that is part of the philosophy by which we go Formula One racing. We think it is generally better that experts in Formula One go racing than owning your own team. The criteria for us is a very simple one, which is do everything you can to win. Clearly, the team felt that by going from Renault to Honda, it is going to give them a better chance of winning. In that sense, I commend the decision. Interesting. I'm not sure I agree with this idea that it would give them a better chance of winning, but yeah. We'll have to see what happens. I mean, you know that there's been development on the Honda, um, and I think that this is I, – I try and figure out how to put this in words, but we know that there's fundamental issues at McLaren. We also know that while the Honda engine that McLaren was running last year and the year prior were less than reliable, I, I was trying to go with dud, but less <laughs> than reliable, it was not the sole cause of all of their problems. Yet, I yeah. think they hung all of their issues on the engine and made it come out as, well, this is, it's the engine, it's the engine, it's the engine. And the reality was there were other problems. The shift to them using Renaults has really highlighted how dysfunctional the entire organization is right now at, at McLaren. Yeah, and I don't want to get 
too far on McLaren right now because we're going to talk about them in a bit. There's other stuff happening there that, that we'll talk about later. So what I'm trying to get to, staying with Red Bull's side, is you know that there's been advancements going on with the Honda engine. There is a distinct possibility that the improvements on the Honda engine and then combine it with an organization that is not dysfunctional and has the power of the new aerodynamics, it could be a good thing. It could be. I mean, in in terms of... Renault's overall philosophy in car, or not Renault, um, Red Bull's overall philosophy in car design. They have always accepted that the engine that they would get, whether that came from uh, Honda or it came from Renault or it came from anybody else, was not the most powerful and was not going to be the fastest engine on the grid. And yet they still figured out how to go and for four years, win constructors' championships, win races, um, and be successful. So in that respect, it's not necessarily the end of the world for Red Bull by going to Honda. Whether or not they can keep the reliability, whether or not they can design the car well enough to overcome the shortcomings of the engine, that's what we need to see. Exactly. And I just I don't know if it's possible to do it enough at least at least not enough to win championships well let's see what they do i mean yeah you gotta admit red bull has been successful despite where they ought to be for a long time um they're they're an energy drinks manufacturer you know they're the only team on the grid that does not come with some kind of racing heritage. Force India. But what other heritage do they have? Okay, but they, they, uh, other than VJ Malia's financial stylings, <laughs> um, For, Force India has no racing heritage, no racing pedigree. They only existed in uh, as far as the creation of this team and something for VJ Malia to spend his questionable profits on. Okay. Well. Where Toro Rosso, or, or not Toro Rosso, where, where Red Bull, again, same kind of a thing. They only exist as a vehicle for Dietrich Mateschitz to spend his profits on and to promote his business. And, and in and it's, that it's case, a it's of- a bigger vehicle, uh, promotion vehicle for Red Bull than anything that Force India does or VJ Malia has done because I think everything that's left on that car has gone bust. Yeah. <laughs> With the exception of Johnny Walker. I mean, well, actually, let me rephrase it. Anything that's left on that car that VJ Malia started has gone bust. Okay. Because I was going to say, BWT is not in any trouble. No, B- BWT, all of the third-party brands that they have brought in are doing just fine. It's the stuff that, v- that VJ has put his fingers on that are in question. To my point, it, most of the other teams have some yeah. kind of legacy in racing. Just those two. And, well, ultimately three, because we have to have two Red Bull teams. So Yeah, okay. So just that's that's kind of the the tact I was taking. But, so they're moving to Honda. So we had, that's our little bit of engine silliness. Um, we also have got some, some comments from Christian Horner on where it looks like things are going for 2021. 
We, we've heard that it sounds like there is agreement on the proposed arrow changes for 19. We haven't heard what they are. Hopefully, I think next two weeks or so, we should get more information about that. Okay. We don't know what that's going to look like just, but supposedly there is agreement on that. Uh, but Christian Horner is has commented on uh, where it looks like things may be going for 2021. And his concern and Red Bull's concern, because of his nature within the team, is that there isn't really some great alignment between the FIA and, and Formula One group. And that as a result, the big changes that they're proposing and want to do may get watered. And, and when I say they, I mean Formula One, uh, not Red Bull. But those changes may get watered down because there's not an alignment between the two. Oh, wow. So what he has to say. The risk I see is the FIA and promoter, promoter aren't fully aligned. We end up with compromises and vanilla-type regulations. I think there needs to be a real clarity going forward as to what the sport is going to be, what the regulations are going to be that both parties have to buy into. Liberty paid six or Liberty paid eight billion dollars for this sport. They've got to turn it into something more attractive with fantastic racing. There's cost issues. There's revenue issues that need dealing with. The FIA, as the governing body, have to be fully aligned with that. What concerns us are discussions over where things are going with engines, where things are going with chassis regulations. Is everything seems to be getting watered down somewhat from what the initial concept is? Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I can't listen to Christian Horner without thinking in the back of my head, what angle is he trying to? Yeah, th there's there's always an angle there. Yeah, it's like, what is, what is the angle going for here? You know, what, because he's always promoting his world. So if he's down on something, it's like, well, what advantage could you have? And so that's kind of the way I, I tend to look at things. Think bigger than your own team for a moment. Think about what's right for Formula One. And for the record, did you always do what was right for Formula One when you were dominating? Absolutely not. <laughs> you do what was right for your team. That's what I'm paid to do. Which is why you can't put the teams in that position. That's why, you know, Bernie is a guy that's responsible for promoting it. Sean's responsible for writing the rules. Those guys need to get together and, and sort it out. But, yeah, that's what Christian needs to do. He needs to... You know, it's a valid point. It was a valid point when he said it way back when. Mm -hmm. It's a valid point now of, of think bigger than your own team. Yeah, you could say that, well, you know, his comments that Formula One and, and the FIA aren't aligned or him doing that. I don't know about that with Christian. But he also has followed up his think bigger than your own team with, well, if you were in Mercedes, because that was the reference, was if you were in Mercedes' spot, would you be pushing for this too? And would you think bigger than your own team? And he's like, no. Yeah, that's that's not what I'm paid for, but yeah. that's what I need to ask for. Yeah. So let's talk about French Grand Prix. Oui, oui. Not here. <laughs> Are we going to start with the five hours of traffic? Um, no, actually, I wasn't going to talk too much about it. Okay. Uh, I, I kind of expected that this was going to be a problem, um, just from what we heard going into that and in the plan that, that – they were doing some planning for it. What's odd is that the French, are, the organizers are going, we've held bigger events and we haven't had this problem. So we don't know why this was such an issue. Uh, but hearing the stories from the journalists of, of what it took to get to the track and the, 
and I don't completely get it since there's an airport next to the track. Admittedly, it's probably a private airport, but there's an airport next to the track. (laughs) Just as a a funny little aside that, okay, might be only funny in my head, but I have to share. You know that the absolute first motorsport event happened in Paris. Well, in France. Yes. And it was a race that left Paris, left the city limits of Paris, turned around and came back into Paris. Mm -hmm. And it happened in the late 1800s. And I heard this and I immediately thought, well, you know, Paris is kind of known for its traffic. I bet it was a really slow race. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was anyway because those cars were really slow back then. Well, there was probably a jogger like next to them that like won the race or something. Horse horse because they, they didn't do jogging back then no no so yes somebody on a horse horseback won the race but yeah it was uh it was just an interesting little funny thought in my head of escaping paris traffic only to come back into paris traffic even in the late 1800s was probably the bigger part of that race so going into the race the last oh well since the race was announced there was a lot of concern that, you know, the nature of this track with its super long straights, um, that it, was, it wasn't really designed for racing, it was designed for testing, that it would not produce exciting racing. Oh, okay. And despite what all the journalists said, at least from what we heard in those first couple of days, where... Everyone was going, oh, what a great race. It was all this action and all this other stuff. I got to say, I call bull. Because mm. the reality was, if it wasn't for the fact that there was the first lap incident, the, well, the, the two first lap incidents, maybe three if you count the, the Grosjean-Ocon crash right at the very start, um, with the exception of those three incidents that all occurred by the time you got to turn three, there was nothing else that happened. Yes, there was exciting racing as Vettel made his way through the grid after getting bumped all the way back and the struggle that Valtteri had coming all the way up. But other than that, and the only reason why that happened is because those guys were out of place. Right. Other than that, if, if things had gone off the way the grid had lined up without any incidents, this would have been a very, very dull race. There wouldn't have been movement through the grid. There wouldn't have been anything going on. Yeah, and, and, and I think the reality is we're looking at, for the remaining time that we're at Paul Ricard in this layout, we're going to get some dull racing. Well, well we're not going to get racing. We're going to get processions. But the thing is, everybody, I mean, it is possible to pass on this track. As proven by the fact that people that were out of place could pass. It is possible to pass on this track when two conditions apply. One, as we saw, you have a significantly faster car than those around you. Yes. Which is what happened with Sebastian Vettel and happened to Valtteri until the damage on the car negated the remaining advantage he had left. That's number one. Number two... It's possible to pass on this track in the one area where there is a significant braking zone because they introduced the chicane because they knew that there was danger in not having that chicane 
you take away all the, the braking zones that people could pass under, which, by the way, the drivers wanted that chicane taken away, and they're now seriously considering taking that chicane out. Because, hey, look at how awesome the racing was. Ignore the fact that we had a, a, a turn one incident that p shuffled the grid around that folks were just trying to recover from. I don't think we're going to get good racing out of Paul Ricard. And, and it's a shame because I think it's important for Formula One to be in France. I think it's important to have a French Grand Prix. I just... From what we saw last week, I'm not sure Paul Ricard is the right place for the French Grand Prix. But Bernie owns it. Yeah. Okay, so here's my theory about Paul Ricard. Okay. My theory is that it will become very similar to a Bahrain, where we will anticipate it being a fairly boring race, and it will only not be a boring race when other factors play in whether we have a really strong title bout going on and we have two contenders mm -hmm. really really pushing or we have people out of place for whatever reason you know that kind of a thing but that's where i see paul ricard going over time now keep in mind i, I have really low opinion of most pundits because they're all reactionary we had four passes in a race. It was a great race. Yeah. We have one pass. It's a pair of terrible race. You know, Lewis is up at the end of France. He's going to win the championship. Uh, Vettel is up at the end of Canada. He's going to win the championship. Well, I mean, uh, you know. The pundits are very, there's no long game with them. I, I, I'm going to call out Jalopnik in particular, the website Jalopnik. And, and I like their stuff. They've got some, some great articles on there. But their article on the French Grand Prix was about how, or, or their headline was that Hamilton wins an event-filled French Grand Prix. <laughs> when everything happened event-wise on lap one, that's not event-filled. Baku, I could say, yeah, that was probably event-filled this year. There was a lot that happened throughout that race. Not the French Grand Prix this year. I get that you're trying to find something. And don't get me wrong. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Not every race needs to be nail-biting edge on your seat. Mm -hmm. I, I, I get that, and I, I agree with that strongly. But I, I think this got overhyped in how the race played out. Well, yes. I also think that even though all of the – melee happened in the first lap by turn three we had retirements that happened throughout the race that were yeah. either results of that or other things that were going on so there were other things that happened no there were no more crashes and if we're going to define exciting racing by crashes then we've got I, a whole other problem I, I, i'm not defining it by by crashes but in terms of um Again, the opportunities to pass, where the, the battles that we saw, the reality was most any battle with, with Sebastian Vettel as he worked his way up through the grid, it was a foregone conclusion what was going to happen mm -hmm. because he had so much more speed on everybody else in that grid with the exception of the Mercedes. It was a foregone conclusion that any car he came up against, he was going to be able to pass. And nobody could challenge Lewis 
at all because the Red Bulls don't have a chance. And the layout of that track is such that if you can't get close enough by that chicane, you are out of luck. Okay. We need to have a discussion. Okay. So if you listen to the populace of the fans, Mm -hmm. they say that F1 will be more exciting when there's more passing. Mm -hmm. There was passing in this race, but you have decided, and you are arguing, if I understand you correctly, that is not just the fact that there was passing that happened, because now you're introducing this factor that the winner of the passes is all a foregone conclusion, and it is just however many laps it takes him to get close enough to the one section that he can pass in. But if the definition of exciting racing is passing... It's not the... it's not the pass maneuver itself. That's why people go and they slam DRS. Because, yeah, if you get the DRS, you're, you're going to be able to pull. It's the fact that you're getting wheel-to-wheel racing, that you're getting it's the fight to pull off that pass and the positioning to do that pass. And this there there wasn't a lot of fighting for position here. It was, up. Oh, Sebastian's coming up. Yep, he made the pass. It, it was that kind of a thing. It wasn't the, gee, are they going to be able to pull it off? Is this person going to be able, you know, is the person he's getting ready to pass, are they going to be able to defend against it? Are, is there a battle in place here? And it was, Sebastian's approaching, up. Oh, he passed him. And that, that's the argument when it comes to DRS-enabled passes to begin with. I'm not, I don't necessarily agree with all the, the, the hate that DRS gets. But, yeah, when it's this, okay, he passes them, and we're at the next... Uh, DRS zone and, and they flip back and because you can't maintain anything that's the issue okay in that race in the French French Grand Prix mm-hmm. Vettel made at minimum 12 passes going from 18th or 19th all the way up to 5th mm-hmm. and they were drama free passes I don't think all of them were truly drama-free passes. Yes, I think it was a foregone conclusion because he was faster that he was going to eventually take the pass. But I don't think they were all drama-free. Okay. Um, and Valtteri made a significant number of passes, and there were fights in the middle, and that's where you're going to find the fights. Yeah. There was competition in the middle of trying to, to time it and make that happen. So... Yeah, I get what you're trying to say, and I understand and agree to a certain point. This may become a fairly boring racetrack, but just because we know who's going to win the pass, barring somebody doing something stupid, doesn't mean it's less exciting. I still love to see Lewis pass somebody, even if he's passing a Sauber. It's But you see that whenever he laps some. You know. I do. I get to see it whenever he laughs somebody. <laughs> but it's it's a beautiful thing to see good racing drivers pass. It is like watching a car dance, even if it's a foregone conclusion who's going to wind up the other side of that turn. So let, let's talk about the incident that pushed Seb all the way back, for which he got a five-second pen. And, and this is the, the one thing that, that – Seb deserves a whole lot of credit for is he got a five second penalty for a mistake that arguably was 
kind of dumb. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds here because I also I go back to Singapore last year and all the criticism that Seb got over the start in Singapore and the incident and my position it, around that. Yeah, it was his fault, but he's a racing driver. He's racing for the win. He's racing for the championship. Regardless of how much you want to say, he didn't necessarily need to be in front at that first turn. That's what they do, and they push, and the champions are doing that. The difference is that they're pulling it off, mm-hmm. but you don't get the chance to try and pull it off if you don't try it. Right. And this was kind of a similar situation. He got, um, if anything, he got a much better start on both Mercedes. He was also on the softer tire. He was on the softer tire. He got a better start than both Mercedes. But just because of the way the track is laid out, he got pinched partway through a move. I guess is the best way to put it. I'm interested to see how you're going to start defending uh, Vettel here. Because he was on a softer tire, and he was headed into a turn. It Mm -hmm. was the first turn. He was pulling up to the rear end of Hamilton because, yes, there is an advantage to being on the softer, stickier tire. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to defend him from the perspective of he shouldn't, he shouldn't be at fault for the move. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I will defend is championship battle, tight situation, wanting to get, it, get track position as soon as possible, and trying the move. I will defend that. I, yeah. I'm not defending. I'm not saying he shouldn't have been penalized for failing to pull it off, mm-hmm. but I don't knock him for trying it. That's the difference. And if you thought I was going to knock the penalty because somehow he shouldn't have done that, I'm not going to knock. You, fi- I, I want to see the drivers pull the move, but I don't have a problem with them getting penalized for failing to successfully pull it off. The thing that struck me as I looked at all of the infinite number of replays of that turn one incident, Valtteri specifically, Mm -hmm. and we all know he got the short end of the stick. He took more damage and all of those types of things. Um, But what really impressed me was the sheer guts on that boy because he, the reason he was in the spot that he was in was he he did a later braking maneuver which defended his spot and Mm -hmm. left him ahead in that corner and that's why he basically he forced Seb to get the penalty for it because he was ahead of him by being late on the brakes and that's guts yeah well he was doing what he had to do right and And I, I I commend him for that um but I just I think that that's what the big key was to um, to Vettel's penalty was Vettel was not ahead in that corner, so it was not up to Valtteri to give way. It was yeah. up to Vettel to give way, and he didn't. And, and Vettel was at a point that he, he couldn't right? because he was as committed as he was, and that's fine. So Vettel gets a five-second penalty mm-hmm. for this. Um, ruins Valtteri's race and damages the car, which meant that he couldn't recover. But there was a lot of folks who were upset over that penalty. 
Well, the theory was that his Vettel's penalty should put him behind Botas. Botas was ahead of him when the penalty, when the incident occurred. And as with most things, if you got an advantage because you cut the chicane or something like that, you have to give the place back. Mm-hmm. Vettel didn't technically have to give the place back. Well, it, it it's not not even so much that he should have been behind Valtteri. The argument that Mercedes has and several other drivers have had over this is he ruined Valtteri's race. He was he was in third, ruins Valtteri's race, gets in an incident that he was at fault for, gets a five-second penalty, and still ends up finishing the race in second. Or third, rather. Fifth. No, he got further up than that. Fifth. No, he was – I have to go look it up. But but the argument is where he ended – I'm sorry. Actually, I'm thinking – you're right. I'm thinking of um, Azerbaijan last year because that's the other situation. The, the other time that there was a very similar situation with Seb that he caused an incident. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the reasons behind causing the incident were very different. But he caused an incident, and in that case – I think he won the race in Azerbaijan after causing that incident. But he finished ahead of Lewis after damaging Lewis's car. Intentionally ramming into Lewis's car. Well, no. The, when he rear-ended Lewis, that wasn't intentional. It was after rear-ending Lewis that that was intentional. But the issue is he comes away with a hall of points and a bigger hall of points than the person whose race he ruined. Right. And folks are upset about that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Nicky Lauda's position is that um, five seconds is nothing. He destroyed the race for the two of them, and all he got was five seconds out of it, and he still gets a major haul of points out of it. Um, so he criticized the FIA over it. Um, Max Verstappen had some <laughs> words as well in okay, the press conference I don't conference think Max's afterwards. words are as serious as Nicky Lauda's are. He wasn't criticizing... The FIA. No. Um, it was, but the reason why Max commented is um, sitting in the post race press conference with uh, the top three, um, they, the, the drivers were asked about their opinion on the penalty and what happened. Mm-hmm. So this was Max's comments as to what he thought for the penalty in the situation. Yeah, I think next time you, you see Seb, you should ask him to change his style. You know, because honestly, it, it's not acceptable. <laughs> That's what they said to me in the beginning of the season. So I think they should do the same. <laughs> and then, of course, Seb shouldn't do anything and just drive again and learn from this and go on. That's my advice to everyone in this room. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, pension and teenager aside. Um, <laughs> Max has got a good point. He got very criticized for being overly aggressive. Vettel is overly aggressive. Um, you know, I think Max's Max's statement is less about the actual penalty and more about the reporters. Yeah. And that the reporters, you know, if you're going to go after me for my style and what's going on with me, you have to you have to fair fair go after Vettel for his. What Max misses is that last year when we had the string of angry Seb, um, 
the reporters did go after Seb really hard about his attitude and how he was his style and and what he was doing Mm -hmm. and it it wasn't just a one-off incident which is right now what this is now it's possible that in a couple of weeks we could see another chain at which point yeah, hopefully they will go after Seb like they did last year. And that's Max's issue, is that Max had a... It wasn't just one race. No, it was seven. It was a string of several races where he was causing problems. Right. And it, he still... I, I, he doesn't have enough of a track record of that being over for us to even say that it's over yet. Because let me tell you something. If he has, a second, if he has an incident in Austria... It, it's going to get added to the tally. It doesn't. It we will. have not reset to zero. The the th- where Max kind of has a point in terms of the criticism around his driving style is that I think he's right in saying that this is how he's always driven. Yeah. The difference, though, that I think everybody misses is that while this is how he's always driven, he's always had luck on his side that he was able to pull stuff off when he drove like this. And he hasn't been quite as lucky this year. And he's trying to do the same stuff that he's been doing the last couple of years, and he hasn't been pulling it off as successfully. There's there's definitely that. But I think that we also have some short memories going on. I mean, here's the, <laughs> the difference between a good driver and a great driver is how much how many of these aggressive moves they actually can pull off you have somebody you know you have somebody that's trying to pull off these aggressive moves and they fail at it you get maldonado yeah you get lance stroll your favorite punching oh see now you admit and your your favorite punching boy you get somebody that's got an a few more successes than failures, and you're going to get somebody around the Max Verstappen where they're going to be asking him a lot of questions about it. You get somebody that's got a lot more successes than failures at the same kinds of aggressive moves. You've got Schumacher. Mm-hmm. You've got Hamilton. You've got Vettel. And I think Schumacher's the outlier there because – and, and the only reason why I say that, yes, he's been very successful, but there have been a lot of rules that were changed as a result of the way Michael Schumacher drove. But and he was the, the, hyper-aggressive. The tact- he was. Um, and, but because of the tactics that he used to use, um, there have been changes to the rules to stop that. That's that's the only reason why I think that that he's a little bit of an outlier there is because – Drivers who behave the way Schumacher behaved during his string of wins um, would be penalized somewhat heavily for some. I mean, that's that's why we have rules against blocking, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, just last little bit on Max's comments and his performance. Helmet Marco uh, has said that act, while Max may not have taken noticeable action himself, the team has. Um, he says um, that Max's drives in both Canada and France were evidence that he is disciplined and can still drive very fast, um, and that he's entered the races lately with a little less willingness to take risks, but not much. Um, Helmet attributes the, the problems that Max has had was that Max put too much pressure on himself. Oh. Yeah, that, that's what he said. 
Um, he said suddenly he made stake, he made mistakes with a car he could drive in front, which he did not make last year when his car was far from so good. He says the team has been through all the variations of how they can stabilize Max. He said it was more a coincidence than a programmed action that nobody was there in Montreal. Um, he didn't have his full entourage in Montreal. It's the first time Max did not have his full entourage. Oh, wow. Yeah. He says, this is the Max we're expecting now. France was a great weekend without any mistakes, um, but said that Max made problems for himself when he wants too much. Mm. And I'm kind of wondering if this is, to some extent, performing around this entourage. I don't know, besides his dad and his mom and his sister, who else is part of this group? Mm. But that's what Helmut says is the issue. Interesting. Yeah. I would say that we've got some youth going on here, but that's just me. So back to the penalty and that situation. Charlie Whiting and the FIA defend handing out this penalty after getting criticism from several corners, including Lewis and others. Um, what uh, Charlie Whiting said is that the stewards had four options open to them. A five-second penalty, 10-second drive-through, or stop-go. Stop they chose the five-second penalty, which is consistent with other incidents of that sort. If you look at the consequences of an incident, then maybe one could think differently. But stewards attempt not to do that. As a result, the five seconds was in line for the type of incident. Right. Well, you've got two... It's handing out penalties, you've got two ways of looking at it. You either assess the incident and look at what it was, what kind of incident it was, what, what makes sense, or you're looking at the outcome of the incident. Yeah. So in this case, and with most F1 races, they look at the severity of the incident itself. Speeding in a pit lane is an incident. Now, if you sped in a pit lane and gained an advantage and passed somebody, you would get penalized for speeding in the pit lane, but not necessarily have to give away or give back that. Well, it depends. I mean, if you get a five second, I mean, if you get a five second time penalty, and then you can open up a five second gap, which we've seen happen, then that penalty doesn't mean a whole lot, and we've seen drivers deal with that. Um, The concern. And, and actually, before we even jump into that, we have s- some more information on this and the fact that um, maybe they'll reconsider this plan. So what Charlie, what Charlie went on to say later on was that the stewards don't normally look at the consequences of the accident, although in fairness, it probably pay- plays a little subconscious part. Let's just say Vettel had continued without any problem. I think the stewards may have thought, that's not fair, He's ruined Valtteri's race. It's clearly his fault, and they might have slightly, they might have thought slightly different. But it's not a conscious thing to say he's okay. He's not. Or let's say it had been the other way around. Let's say Valtteri continued. Vettel had caused the accident. But should you actually penalize him as well as the penalty he's already got? Self punishment, if you like. It's something that we're discussing. It could open the door to something that we're not expecting although some could argue it's a bit more common sense. So it's something that we're currently discussing with the stewards. And the concern I have here is that, okay, they go and they hand Vettel a five-second penalty, and then they go, well, wait a minute. Here we are 40 laps into the race, 
and he's looking like he's going to get a podium after getting a five-second penalty for doing something stupid. So are they going to assess him another penalty to deny him a podium? Think of the outrage that would occur of double penalizing somebody for an incident laps later. They wouldn't do that. What will happen is they will hold all penalizations and penalties till after the race and we'll get provisional results until they sort it all out. That's what's happened. They won't double penalize him because they'll be so afraid that that's what the scenario would be to happen, that they will force the race to finish. And then instead you get allegations that the stewards stewards are manipulating race race. results. And the reality is, and I I cannot. It's not a good position to be in. And as much as I absolutely hate the fact that Vettel took out Valtteri and both of them went to the very back of the grid and there was more damage on Botas's car than Vettel's car and Vettel was able to weave through traffic better than Botas was. The sheer fact that both of them had to weave through traffic, it's a penalty in and of itself. And Mm -hmm. I get that. But... Part of this whole racing thing is recovering from these things. And Vettel did, and as much as it literally makes me hurt to say this, Vettel did a better job on the recovery than Valtteri did. Does that mean that Vettel should have gotten a bigger penalty? Maybe it should have been a 10-second penalty instead of a 5-second penalty, but it wouldn't have changed that Vettel was going to come out ahead of Botas. It yeah. wouldn't have changed that piece. So the truth is, unless you are going to give a major penalty for something that did not take either car completely out of the race, and they both finished, and they both finished in the points. But arguably, Valtteri should have finished a whole lot higher up, except for the fact that his floor got damaged. Now, again, as a steward, you can't account for that, right. and you shouldn't be. But And as Jolie and Palmer said in the Five Live thing, that's racing. It is. And we have to not artificially account for that's racing. I mean, come on. How many races have the pole position person should have won the race, and with giant air quotes, except for a bad start on, on I, the thing? I, you don't have to get hit by another car to, have, to finish out of place. I, I, I think where I would have been troubled by it more if the the normal punishment for an incident like this was oh i don't know a stop go mm-hmm. and instead they handed him a five second penalty that i think would have been a different story um so moving on yeah because we've spent a lot of time beating up on this um and actually we're going to beat up on seb a little bit more um by now, you've already seen it. You you already know what has happened. But as we're recording this, uh, we got word that Sebastian Vettel was handed yet another penalty for the the Austrian Grand Prix, getting a three-grid position penalty for impeding Carlos Sainz. Oh, wow. Um, now, Carlos said that really didn't impact his, his qualifying session all that much. But, yeah, it, it did meet the 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 criteria of being impeding and i don't even think it was reno that reported this i think it was the marshals that made this determination but as a result of that he falls back 
to sixth. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Toto Wolf, after this had occurred, um, yeah, admittedly, this is a sky is blue kind of comment, but it said that, you know, these repeated errors from Sebastian um, could bite him again in a title fight. We saw it happen in 2017. Um, these are things that Seb can control to some extent. And, yeah. Okay, so Toto also said that what was going to win the championship was marginal gains. Yeah. And, I mean, we're at that point. The engine development is such that they're not going to get great gains. We're going to get a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit this other place. And he's also equally right. What will lose the championship is marginal errors. Just a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, just that little bit. Now, am I personally, as a Lewis fan, hugely thrilled that Seb on softer tires is not right behind Lewis again? Or mm -hmm. Botas in this case, because Botas has called. Not behind a Mercedes. Not behind a Mercedes. And the fact that we have the... Because the positions on the front of the grid are remarkably similar with just Lewis and Valtteri swapped if Vettel had not gotten that penalty. So well, no, he's further back now. But with the penalty, he's further back. Yeah. When I went to bed last night and thought he was still going to be third, my brain was going to, wow, if Vettel repeats the same error that he did in France, he's taking Lewis out. And that bothered me. So having a few extra cars as buffer and putting him in the middle where the melee will actually happen <laughs> makes me a happy, happy girl. So moving on, and we'll talk a little more about Austria in a bit, but moving on, we have, as we have mentioned before, we are firmly in silly season. You know, I've just realized that we're like at our third topic for today. I know. We're moving really. I mean, there was a lot that happened and a lot to, to go through. To talk so about. I might but, suggest to our loyal listeners that they pause the podcast for just a minute. <laughs> just pause. Don't go away. Go to the bathroom. Get a snack. Well, you know, if you think about it, our last couple of shows have been kind of short. There haven't been a lot to talk about. There hasn't been a lot of discussion. So it's great that we've got stuff to talk about. Um, Take a week off and this is what happens. Yeah. Well, even... Before the last time we took a week off, there just there wasn't a lot to talk about. So, I need you to listen really carefully. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Kevin, get out of the way! Five years, five years. I've been waiting to play that again. I know. And it is sounding like we are closing in on the end of Kimi Raikkonen's career, and. As much as we, we joke about it and, and we laugh about it, yes, in, in a way it is a shame that, that we are losing Kimmy. He has been a stalwart in Formula One for a very long time. He is certainly a source of entertainment um, for the Formula One fans, but he's past his prime. Let's see, he's been past his prime for quite a while now. Um, it is looking very 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 strongly as we record uh that charles leclerc will be replacing kimmy the question is when 
So the BBC and several other outlets reported on Friday and Saturday of this week that Charles Leclerc has agreed in principle but has not signed. And, and some are saying that he has signed, but at least the BBC is saying that he has agreed in principle but has not yet signed a two-year deal with Ferrari to begin in 2019, replacing Kimi Raikkonen. Well, on one hand, I mean, Kimi's in his 40s. He's the elder statesman of the Formula One track. I don't think Kimmy's decided that he's leaving Formula One, but I don't know if anybody is knocking down his door. It's not, well, th- this is going to be one of those things that it's li- like the last time he left Formula One, it's not his ch- going to be his choice. Same thing with Schumacher. It was not his choice to leave Formula One, and it's the same thing that's going to happen with Kimmy. Um, but it's time. Now, the question truly becomes at this point of when this swap is going to happen. And now those of you driving are looking at your radios going, what the hell are you talking about? You just said till 2019. Well, there was a rumor that popped up this past week that actually um, Ferrari is working with uh, Sauber to do a driver swap much earlier in the season with Kimi going down to Sauber in exchange for Charles Leclerc to take his seat at Ferrari. Now, Frederick Vasseur over at Sauber has said, um, no, not going to happen. We have a contract until the end of the season. We have not had these discussions. This is not happening. Um, we are focused on Charles finishing out the season and building the team to where we expect. But there's a rumor that this swap may happen sooner. Wow. I mean, that I think that would be fairly unprecedented. I don't think Ferrari's known for midseason swaps like this. I mean, Red Bull, known for it. Red Bull don't, you know, mm-hmm. I fully expect Brendan Hartley to not finish the season at this point. But Ferrari to pull that move on somebody who, let's, let's just admit, while he may be past his prime, he is still a world champion. He's still a big name. Yeah. I mean, marketing-wise... I don't know what the fan, how the fans would react to you shunning Kemi like this. Let him have the rest of his season. I don't think Ferrari would care because of the fact that, remember, when it comes to Ferrari and the red team, it is all about them winning first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And if they have a driver in the stable— I mean, they're, they're willing to take a big enough risk on Charles Leclerc that they're going to bring him up after two years or on his second year. Because this is his first year, isn't it? This is his rookie year, yes. That they're willing to – and Ferrari's not a team to bring in rookie drivers, untested drivers, that they're willing to bring him on after just a season. I think that says a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But we're also talking about – a driver that has put Sauber into Q3, which hardly ever happens. Mm-hmm. He's, what, started sixth? He he has been in the points for the last three or four races. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he is proving himself to be quite the prodigy. Yeah. So... Another rumor that broke out this past week 
don't know how much to agree with it or not. Um, word is, and I think this came initially out of the, the Daily Mail, either the Daily Mail or the London Mirror, um, that Sauber, or not Sauber, excuse me, that McLaren has approached Daniel Ricciardo with an offer for a seat for, and, and offered him somewhere in the area of 20 to 30 million dollars, 30 million pounds, not dollars, but 20 to 30 million pounds, which is significantly more than he gets over at Red Bull, but less than what Fernando gets over at McLaren. Right. So now, all the pundits that know anything are saying Ricardo would be absolutely stupid to take it over mm-hmm. at McLaren, and the only reason to take the job would be as a money grab. Um, but I think that this is coming on the heels of. I will not be surprised if we don't start hearing an announcement that. Fernando is leaving Formula One this year. Yeah, I think that's likely, which then becomes the question of what will McLaren do for a driver lineup? Do they look to get a big name in the seat? There's certainly a lot of doubt as to uh, Stoffel the Flying Waffle's future. Right. So do they find somewhere else for Stoffel to go? Do they find somebody to pair up against Stoffel's experience? Do they let both drivers go and bring up, I think it's Oliver Turvey is there? No, uh, Lando Norris. Lando Norris. And he seems to be the most likely replacement for Stoffel. Um, But the thought is that they're going to need, that they might need a name to help them get some title sponsorship. Well, there's that. You also want some degree of experience next to your rookie Williams um, <laughs> but you want some level of experience to, to to lead the team right and Stoffel yeah he's a he's a decent driver he's not a great driver I as much as I don't want to speak bad about Stoffel I don't think he's going to be the next big thing in Formula One no, and I think he came with a lot more hype than he is proving worthy of. Well, his one Formula One experience prior to being signed for the season, he got points in the McLaren before Fernando managed to get points in, in the McLaren that year. So, Well, keeping in mind, Fernando was concussed at the time. Yeah. Um, so there's a big shakeup over at McLaren. Um and I think that they are just seriously disorganized. So to, to kind of counter this, there is also word that um, Daniel Ricardo is really close to committing to Red Bull, to stay with Red Bull. From Christian Horner? Um, no, it, it is inside sources. Um, we don't know for sure. Helmut Marco did say that, that the New Deal is getting closer. Mm-hmm. Now, who knows after the argument on the radio during qualifying on Saturday that could maybe set things that back a little bit and maybe he is going to want to be a designated number one I don't know yeah that see that's the interesting piece is I don't think Daniel is loving the structure and the apparent favoritism to Max over there and that's not a huge surprise that Helmet Marco plays favorites. We heard about this from 
uh, Mark Weber. Uh, mm -hmm. He freely admitted that it was Helmet who brought up Seb, and Seb was the favorite. Seb was the prodigy. Now, the difference, though, is that Daniel came up through the same program that Seb and Max did. Right. As opposed to Mark Weber, who came over from Williams after having a, a disastrous time over there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know how that works in Helmut Marco's favoritism scale. Right. Uh, the other rumor that was flying around this week is that Renault was making a play for Adrian Newey. Really? Yeah. Now... Adrian still has another year to run on his contract over at Red Bull as the chief technical officer. Um, but I guess there were rumors that started popping up around Monaco that folks at Renault were trying to pursue Adrian Newey. At this point, Cyril Abitbull has said that, no, they are not going out. Yes, there were some general conversations, but no real effort to lure Adrian away from Red Bull. Interesting. That would have been very interesting if that had occurred. That would have been interesting. While we're talking about uh, Renault, mm -hmm. do you remember last year with all the engine issues that Renault had had that we had heard about this MGUK that they wanted to roll out? Right. Um, tried to bring it out over in preseason testing, and it blew up a couple of times. Tried to bring it out a couple of other times during the year, and we thought it was going to come, thought it was going to, and, and it never actually happened. Yes. Well, for the Austrian Grand Prix, the revised, much-hyped, much-anticipated 2017 Renault MGUK was available for teams to run. And as a matter of fact, both Renault drivers had it installed in their cars. 2017? The 2017 MGUK. I, I am, this is not a situation where I have misspoke and, and transcribed <laughs> numbers. This is actually the MGUK that they planned on rolling out for the start of the 2017 season and could not make it work. And we really, are really. through the 2018 season. All right. Now, the this particular um, MGUK is supposed to have had Mm -hmm. a special qualifying party mode yes christian horner called it a pre-drinks mode well to to be clear pre-dinner drinks mode to be clear though the red bulls were not running that mguk this this weekend um and it was done it was available to all of the Renault teams mm -hmm. it was not placed in the red bulls or in fernando's car uh because of other MGUK failures, if they had replaced it for this race, there would have been grid penalties taken for it. Ah. So it was not fitted to the two cars. The um, the Renault Works drivers had it, and I believe Stoffel Van Dorn had it. But, yeah, that's how this has been described by, now, admittedly, Christian Horner's no longer a Renault fan and that divorce is ongoing. <laughs> uh, but, yes, it is not so much a party mode as a pre-dinner drinks mode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, while we're talking about McLaren, so we know that they didn't pull on the full uh, MGUKs in both cars. Uh, they're admitting that they've got aerodynamic issues with this year's car. Mm -hmm. It is not nearly as great as they told us it was going to be. Things are not as well at McLaren as they really want us to think they are. 
I and know you know you're something? shocked by this. None of us could have figured that out based on their fabulous performance this year, right? Yeah. So according to Zach Brown, um, they have identified that there are problems with the car, but they can't figure out what they are. He says, I think we've identified the areas in which we have a problem or problems. It's in the aerodynamics. But, and where have we heard this before? It's something that doesn't show up in the wind tunnel. Um, therefore, we can't try to solve it in the wind tunnel because we can't replicate the issue or issues. It's not a wind tunnel issue. What we've identified is the areas of weakness just simply don't show up in a wind tunnel. So unfortunately, we're having to test an experiment at the racetrack. So already, and you know, conveniently, they did this at Paul Ricard, which is designed for testing. Um, they tested different wing and floor configurations at Paul Ricard, and we know how well that worked for McLaren. Ooh. So, yeah, there are those issues. Um, um, so I learned something this week. Okay. Um, that I'm sure you are going to look at me like, I can't believe you didn't know this already. So I'm going to say it in my out loud voice because somebody listening is also going to learn something. Okay. Wind tunnel testing. Yeah. They It makes it sound like this is like the end all and be all of testing. Do you know what it doesn't test? Um, it doesn't test G-forces on a car. Cornering. Yeah. It only tests how air moves over the car straight in a straight line. Speed. line. Therefore... If you are going to solve problems that happen in the corners, and not just G-forces in the corners, but how air flows over the car in a, in a corner, mm -hmm. you have to do it in, with computational fluid dynamics. Yep. Which is restricted. Is, but I think their maths are wrong in McLaren. It wouldn't be the first time we've run into this issue. Yep. That, that a team has built aerodynamic models that they have used with CFD that aren't accurate enough right and i think that that's big the big and so i get that is not like earth-shattering news but once i started to figure out and put it into place that the wind tunnel can't measure every condition mm -hmm. and think about how many corners there are in an f1 track i mean i get there's only seven well, in this current it, one but, but but it's it's not just the corners though but then you also have to account for the corners and the direction that the wind is coming from as you go through the corners because depending on where the wind hits that car impacts it completely differently. Correct. But I think that that's one of the things where Adrian Newey has dialed it in so very, very well mm -hmm. is, and this is one of the secrets, the secret sauce that Red Bull has, is they are not the fastest in a straight line. But by focusing on being the fastest in the corners they overall do very, very well. Now, I get they're having some other issues and all that type of stuff, but that's the secret sauce. And I think that's where McLaren is losing it. Oh, no, they're losing it in other places as well. Well, okay. I'll give them a so, one spot if they're losing it. Eric Boulier, and actually in many ways, and I think Eric is just parroting this, in many ways, even though Ron Dennis is long gone from the team, his influence still remains. Mm-hmm. So besides hearing the, you know, the, the rose-colored glasses view of the team that everything is going just great, even though they're, they're doing terrible, which Ron was notorious for that as well, and we've had that for years, and, and we're still getting that from the team, which is frustrating. But 
Eric Boulier, going into the French Grand Prix, said that really their problem is, and where they need to go, is that they really need to be a works team in order to be winning races and to win as a constructor again. This is this is what he. This is their problem: is that they're not a works team. Okay. Let's besides, you know, setting aside the fact that they went to Honda because they wanted to be the works team, and that was, you know, that was Ron's philosophy. And I, I get to some degree where that feeling could come from. Um, the other thing is, since the rules have been amended or reinforced to say that works team or not, everybody gets the same stuff, mm-hmm. that shouldn't be an issue. But what what he said during what Eric Bouillet said during the press conference the Friday before France I think Christian is in Christian Horner is showing that you can win races as a customer I think winning a championship is another level you need to have works team status we're starting a a new journey with Renault and getting used to working together there are a lot of things to discover and build on and having obviously a little bit more focus and less distraction for Renault, having one team less to supply and to care about is obviously good news for us. And we w- wish Christian the best. I'm glad they wish Christian the best. But I'm sorry. Th- th- this is not where McLaren should be looking. <laughs> Fix the dang car. Figure out how to move up in the grid. Don't worry about being a works team. Don't worry about winning a championship. Get the points right. Get the car right. Get your drivers sorted out. Yeah, if you are firing on all cylinders for all of these different pieces, being a works team won't matter. Now, you know how, as I mentioned, this rose-colored view that they are putting out to the team and everything is going well and everything is great well again going back to the daily mail prior to the french grand prix according to that the the staff members are starting to get really upset and they're not happy with management now the example that was used um which i i I don't know if this is how real this is but the example that was used is apparently uh, what triggered the staff to go start talking to the Daily Mail anonymously is that instead of getting monetary bonuses for stuff that was happening, folks were getting Cadbury's Freddo chocolate bars. And this bothered yes. people. Yes. There, there's been the chocolate gate yeah. going on at McLaren. But as part of this, um, according to the, the Daily Mail, um, some McLaren employees said that they would like to see Martin Whitmarsh return. I'd love Martin to return. I liked him so very much. Well, you know, if nothing else, in terms of how the car has performed, Martin had a pretty decent string of I mean, no, they didn't win a championship, but arguably in 2012, that car should have won it. They had the fastest engine. They had a well-performing car. They had two drivers who were capable of winning championships and winning races, and McLaren kept shooting themselves in the foot over procedural errors. Right. I don't know. I'm thinking in terms of proven performance, um, Martin might have a little bit more than current leadership. I don't know. I agree with you, but then again— 
you know, there's a lot of armchair team principals that probably have more on the ball than current leadership. Yeah. So we know we've got 21 races coming up next year. Yes. Um, according to the German newspaper Bild, because we have not seen a even a, a tentative schedule just yet, but according to Bilds, um, neither Hockenheim nor Nürburgring will be on the calendar next year. Uh-oh. Um, that position, in order to maintain the 21 races, that provision appears to be going provisionally to Miami. Okay. Now, we haven't heard that Miami is off the table as of yet, but there have been some changes to the proposed layout for the race. So originally, as you'll recall, we, we spoke about, and again, you'll need to pull up the map of Miami to, to understand what we're talking about here. But the plan was that the, the track would go around the American Airlines Arena through the Plot B section along the waterfront and then up across the bridge to Dodge Island and Port of Miami and back over for two really long stretches and then a quick little loop around the outskirts of Bayside Marketplace and up, uh, I just lost the name of the, the road. MacArthur Causeway? Uh, no, not the MacArthur Causeway. Um, oh, uh, Biscayne Boulevard. Oh. That's it. Small part along Biscayne Boulevard. Uh, instead, what they're going to do, because they lost Plan B, is instead of going up uh, north around American Airlines Arena, they're going to go deeper into Bayside. And it looks like the proposed plan is going to have it run essentially along the length of Bayside Marketplace. So it would probably be along or very outside of Bayside Marketplace, along the path there, which I guess they're going to widen, or it's wide enough to take the cars, but it'll run the entire length of Bayside Marketplace down to the waterfront, and then along the waterfront, and then loop over to Biscayne Boulevard and be a bit longer down Biscayne Boulevard. Okay. I don't know if this is going to be a better track or a better layout. It's still not it's a whole still lot, a lot of turns. Of I don't know. Turns yeah. And straights. Although we'll have, if it follows along Bayside Marketplace, you're going to have a, a sweeping left-hander. That would probably be 40 to 45 degrees. Okay. So that could be a potential area. There wouldn't be a lot of uh, acceleration up to that turn either. So there could be some jockeying through the, the park area. I don't know. Hmm. Again, still up in the air, still provisional as to whether or not that's going to happen. So, other series. Full-packed show this week. So, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that um, Felipe Massa had signed with the Venturi team to drive in Formula E for 28, well, the 2018-2019 season. Uh, the 2017-18 season actually ends, it's either next week or the week after in New York. Right. Um, and then eighteen nineteen starts. Well, Felipe Massa will be joining the Venturi team, but he is not the only one who will be joining that team. Uh, it turns out that uh, Susie Wolf has invested in the Venturi team, and in along with her bringing a dump truck full of money to invest in the team, she will be adding her race experience and be joining the team as team principal. I am so excited for this because I have all the respect in the world for Susie and I love Masa to pieces. So I have already decided that I am team Venturi. Not that I watch Formula E, but I am team Venturi. Well, let's just think about 
the conflict of interest that's about to occur for the 2018-2019 season. I believe it's the 2018-2019 season that Mercedes will be rolling out a works Formula E team to replace their DTM efforts because they pulled out a DTM to go over to Formula E. Mm-hmm. So you've got F- Susie Wolf, who is living on Mercedes money courtesy – a is a former Mercedes DTM driver. That's her, how she met Toto because Toto was running the DTM team. Mm-hmm. Um, Toto, who now is team principal of Mercedes, Susie, who is living off of some of Toto's money. I mean, it's a joint bank account. Let's be clear here. She <laughs> she may be bringing in money of her own, but there there's a joint bank account. They're married. Come on, they're married. She's married to the team principal of Mercedes, Mercedes, who now has a Formula E team who is going to be competing against the Formula E team that Susie has invested in and is now leading. That won't be uncomfortable. Okay, but was it uncomfortable (laughs) when Toto owned a piece of Williams when she was the test and development driver for Williams? He owned a piece of it, but he was... He he didn't... I, I think... Well, he wasn't leading the team, though. It wasn't like he was team principal. And he's he was not like going to be advisor. leading the Formula E team either. He's not, but I think the relationship is going to be a little different there. I mean, in a way, the, the question is, is it going to be any more or less uncomfortable when she is commentating for Channel 4 and they go, hey, let's bring Toto over to go and give us a comment, and they've got to stand next to each other, especially if the race goes bad for Mercedes. <laughs> and she's just got to stand there with that sheepish grin on her face, like, I really want to go and poke him, so wait till tonight, and then he's really going to get hammered because I can't say anything now. <laughs> Do you remember when she was still the test and development driver for Williams, and she would be in the Williams garage? Well, it was in Silverstone. It was in the Williams garage, and Toto was down in the Mercedes garage, and they were they were out on the you know the teams were out on the track. They were fighting during the race. Williams was actually doing well that year. Uh huh. And Susie texted Toto and said, "Did you guys just pull the dummy? Because he yes. sent all of the people out to make the them look like they were coming in." Well, it was the passes time. and everything else that went on, the interchange between them, and then Eddie Jordan ribbing. Toto over how that whole thing worked and Toto going, yeah, I guess uh, uh, we won't be having dinner together today. (laughs) (laughs) So something tells me that they have a very healthy relationship and their sense of competition and, you know, being able to do and work well together is is king. But Toto's not running the Formula E team. I think that the the walls will be pretty nice between the two. And far better that she run and be team principal of Venturi than, you know, somehow get the job of team principal for the Mercedes Formula E team because then it's just going to look like absolute nepotism. Well, the the one thing I, I do have to wonder is – could this potentially set up some type of a partnership between Venturi and Susie's Dare to Be Different foundation mm-hmm. to actually be uh, move that not just from a group that's intended to encourage women's participation in autosport to actually become a driver development program or to have some facet of driver development knowing that the potential payoff could be a seat in Venturi? 
I mean, that would be a phenomenal next step for the Dare to Be Different uh, group. And keeping in mind that that group doesn't just encourage women driving. Mm-hmm. But women in engineering too. Well, that's why I said participation and in motorsport. Not it's it, it, the 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 pieces I have seen on that program make me long to be, and nothing makes me long to be a twelve year old girl again, but long to be one so that I could get a spot in the Dare to Be Different group. Well, I'm I'm sure if you wanted to, there were ways that you could support the group. Probably not in Northeast Ohio. I I wouldn't say that. And actually, it may be something for, worth you reaching out to them about. I, I could definitely do that. So in other series, um, at least in some race series, if you fail to drive at what are considered acceptable standards, the series themselves may consider whether or not they will allow your future participation in said series. In specific, we are talking about European Formula 3 and driver Amaya Vadjanathan. Really? And I'm probably mistakenly pronouncing his name, but since I'm guessing he probably won't have a future in motorsport, it's not going to matter. Okay, so this is not a name to remember. Um, It is from the perspective of at the, um, the Norris ring. Uh, in Germany last weekend, where he was involved in a major, major, major crash. So lined up on the grid, he's out towards the back, uh, if not at the back. Um, And one of the cars at the start of the race stalled out, did not begin, and um, Amaya plowed right into him. This wasn't like a glancing blow or anything like that. Um, he came from a good, oh, two or three, actually probably closer to four or five grid rows back. Wow. And plowed straight into the rear of the stalled car. Whoa. Now, supposedly, um, it was he was watching the car, and it was the theory of you will drive towards whatever you're looking at. And he was looking at it and plowed into it. (coughs) However, officials at Formula 3, as a result of this incident, are looking at whether he, quote, meets the standard of ability and awareness for Formula 3. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it is possible to be so bad that the the series considers kicking you out of the league. I like it. Now, by comparison, also Formula 3 driver, although he is not driving in the full Formula 3 series, uh, but Formula 3 driver Billy Monger, you remember Billy, uh, uh, goes by the moniker Billy Wiz, who was uh, seriously injured last year in a Formula 4 race in a horrific crash that caused him to lose both of his legs. Correct. Um, Well... He was given a chance to test drive a Sauber car at Rockingham a few weeks ago. He didn't know this was coming. Now, this was not um, Sauber that put this on. This was actually, um, oh, who was it? It was a historic 
the, the car isn't owned by Sauber at this point. Heritage F1 is, uh, they're a historic F1 car supplier. They set this up. They have a Sauber C30. They brought it over to the uh, Rockingham sports car course where um, he had already raced earlier in the week. The car was configured specifically uh, to allow him to drive the car. They set up hand controls in the car oh, wow. to control the throttle and everything else. He got a seat fitting and uh, drove the car for several laps. Now, the, the Sauber C30 was raced by Sergio Perez, Kamui Kobayashi, and Pedro De La Rosa in the 2011 season. Mm. So this is a car that I don't think had um, ERS. Oh, okay. Because I think that was just before that, but did have DRS. We don't know what kind of times he ran or how well he did. I'm assuming that everything went well. He didn't wreck the car. Uh, otherwise, we would have heard about that. I'm sure we would have. But, uh, yeah, he uh, got to drive a Formula One car. Very good. All right, are you ready to take off on the wild blue yonder for again? Yeah, it's going to be uh, be a long couple of trips. We apologize for the two-week break, but we gave you, you know, over an hour and a half a show to listen to, so you can break it up if you needed to. If you didn't, well, hey, well, can't help Well, if they're at this point and they need to break it up, they've got like two two seconds left to, to, to pause to get a snack, so I don't yeah. know if we're going <laughs> to continue to go. But we have a race to watch, and um, we will see you in two weeks' time. Classic moments of that race for me yeah. was to see his wife jumping up and down when Williams were first and second. How did that feel for you? <laughs> we are not on speaking terms at the moment. I can understand that. No, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> we are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. classic moments of that race for me yeah. was to see his wife jumping up and down when Williams were first and second. How did that feel for you? <laughs> we are not on speaking terms at the moment. I can understand that. No, that was a joke, by the way. <laughs> <laughs>